Okay, I think with that reverent hush, we should go ahead and uh, make a start. Um, welcome everyone to this week's uh, session in the uh, Political Economy and Financial Markets uh, Seminar. It's my great pleasure to introduce two very distinguished speakers uh, for tonight's session, uh, both of whom are going to be talking about the uh, interface of economic and political crisis in interwar Europe. Our first speaker tonight is Kevin O'Rourke. He is Professor of Economic History at All Souls. Um, he received his education from uh, Trinity College Dublin and his master's and PhD from Harvard University. He has taught at University College Dublin and um, uh, uh, Trinity College Dublin and uh, Columbia University in New York City before moving to All Souls in 2011. He's the author of a number of articles and books on uh, economic history and international economics. I'm just going to go ahead and read out a few titles to get a sense of his range and some of the things he's published lately. Um, he published a book with uh, a colleague called Globalization History, the Evolution of a 19th Century Atlantic Economy. That was published in 1999 by MIT Press. He followed that with a book entitled Power and Plenty, Trade, War, and the World Economy in the Second Millennium, published by Princeton in 2007. And most recently, he is the co-editor of the Cambridge Economic History of Modern Europe, two volumes published by Cambridge in 2010. Uh, he's going to speak for about 45 to 50 minutes, and then we're going to have uh, our discussant, uh, Othan Anastakis, uh, going to deliver an intervention for us. I think he's quite well known to everybody here. He's kind of lord of the manor. He's the uh, director of the European Studies Center, director of CSOCS, also senior research fellow in the Department of Politics and International Relations. And he, too, has published widely on a range of different subjects, including... Uh, um, Balkan history, uh, affairs of the European Union, and most recently, uh, the rise of the radical right uh, in Greece in particular and Europe in general. I just want to uh, um, uh, mention a couple of things that he's just published recently. Uh, Reforming Greece, Sisyphean Task, or Herculean uh, Challenge, what he did with Dorian Singh, and also from Crisis to Recovery, Sustainable Growth in Southeast Europe. So I think we're going to then turn it over to Kevin for 45 to 50 minutes, and then Often we'll give a 10-minute uh, response, and then we'll give Kevin a chance to respond to the response if he'd like, and then we'll just open it up for general questions. So please refrain from any questions until we actually get to that point. But that moment, we'll turn the podcast off and then have a general discussion probably somewhere around 6 o'clock. Okay? Please, Kevin. Okay. Thanks. Is it okay, podcaster, if I stand up? Is that? Yeah. Um, as an Irish Catholic, I've noticed that Protestants sing better than we do. I think it's because they stand up for him. So I'm going to stand up uh, while I sing. So um, I feel that I've been invited uh, along today under false premises in a couple of ways. I mean, if for sure, looking at the relationship between political extremism and the business cycle is an issue where history does seem to be rhyming uh, quite a lot these days. And yet... I think it's also a lot easier to think of ways in which today's Europe differs from the Europe of the interwar period than to think about ways in which they are similar. So it isn't actually clear how many lessons can be drawn from this interwar experience. I'm sure we'll be talking about that in, in the discussion as we go along. And secondly, uh, as you'll see when I discuss the work that I've been doing on this, uh, you'll see that the nature of the work is such that a lot of the most interesting questions that you might actually want to ask about the economic roots 
of interwar political extremism are questions that we can't handle very well given our methodology, right? So this is a very simple paper, actually. It's a very typical paper as written by quantitative economic historians. We're interested in average correlations. We're quantifying relationships. Uh, and there are at least two problems with that if you want to draw lessons. Firstly, if you're talking about something like the development of fascism or authoritarianism or whatever it is in a particular country, in the 1920s or 30s. This is a case where the individual data points are as interesting as the average correlation and probably a lot more interesting. So that's a big caveat. And secondly, as you'll see, the nature of the exercise is such that I can't really say very much about the mechanisms that might be underlying the correlations, although I will be talking about them. But when I talk about them, I'll just be drawing from bits of the historical literature that Paul here knows a lot more about than I do, and we'll see if he thinks that I've been drawing, whether I've been drawing on the right bits of the literature or not. All right. Um, I started getting interested in the interwar period back in 2008, 2009, in the winter of 2008, I noticed, and um, Barry Eichengreen noticed, that uh, output and trade were falling every bit as quickly as they had been doing in the first 12 months of the Great Depression. So the blue line is uh, an index of world industrial output indexed to the pre-Great Depression peak in June 1929, and the red line is world industrial output indexed to the pre-Great Recession peak in April 2008. And when we looked at this first and draw, drew these graphs, it looked pretty scary. It looked like uh, we were basically experiencing something that was on a Great Depression type of scale. And immediately, you know, the first thing you thought was, we've got to arrest this, right? Because if it goes on for year after year after year, I mean, that's what did the damage, ultimately. It wasn't one or two years of bad growth. It was, it was three, four, five years back. That's what does the political damage. That's, what, that's how we were thinking. Now, no sooner had we started to worry about this than... <coughs> then the world economy started to recover. I mean, economists are known for their sense of timing. So we, we, uh, we published a, 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 an article that had it up to here. And no sooner have we done that than the thing turned around, which is good news. Um, but actually, it was okay for us. Uh, we were okay with this intellectually also, because the point of that first article was to say, you know, we need to avoid the perverse policy response that followed the start of the Great Depression, where they engaged in pro-cyclical fiscal policy, where they, on several occasions, raised interest rates, trying to keep countries on gold, and so on. And the good news is, that at the global level, we did actually do a lot better. After 2008-9, there was the uh, London meeting in April 2009. They agreed on, well, it wasn't a very big coordinated reflation, but there was a bit of coordinated reflation, and at the least, uh, they allowed automatic stabilizers to operate, and there was a big concerted uh, central bank response as well. So this is sort of more or less what we um, expected to see and we were happy to see it. However, as you probably know, this world recovery is really a story about the emerging world. So this is the uh, industrial output chart for the emerging world. What you see in the rich countries is that there's a recovery and then sometime around 2011, it, 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 starts, to, it starts to flatten out and it gets worse because if you look within the rich countries, what you see is that the recovery is really driven by the United States. Uh, in the Eurozone in particular, the thing uh, flat, started flattening out in 2010 and has been on a clear, albeit gentle, downward slide ever since. And again, although we were irritated and worried about this, intellectually we were okay with it because this is kind of what the basic model 
would have predicted because 2010 is, of course, when everybody starts worrying about Greece uh, and when uh, reflation uh, in the Eurozone is uh, replaced with austerity. And any simple undergraduate model would tell you that that will not immediately, but eventually lead to output declines. And so, in fact, it turned out uh, to be. So the origins of the paper I'm going to talk about today uh, are right about here. Uh, this is when uh, we, we, we learned what the policy response to the Greek crisis was going to be. And if you're somebody like myself or Barry Eichengreen, you're going to instinctively start to worry that we're tightening too quickly, too early, and what are the implications of this going to be. And we started immediately thinking about the potential <coughs> political consequences as well as the economic consequences. Because you know, once you start thinking about the interwar as an analogy, uh, flawed or otherwise, it's the politics of that analogy that, that make it so, uh, so striking. Um, that's what happened to industrial output. Of course, the thing that really could do the damage in the long run politically is unemployment. And again, it's the same sort of story. There's a concerted rise uh, in unemployment during the Great Recession, and then it starts to fall uh, in the United States and has been in a downward trajectory ever since, and it starts to rise it's the same timing, it's 2010, 2011 uh, in uh, the Eurozone. And, and we know how high unemployment is right now in countries like Greece uh, and Spain. All right? So, not just economic historians, policymakers too, at around about 2010, started to worry that you know, this might turn sour uh, ultimately. Um, here's a quote by uh, somebody that many of you will know, I suppose, Adam Posen, who was still at the Bank of England in those days. And this is from a speech he gave at Hull. And it's a, it's a nice uh, quotation. This is, everybody was worried about the debt, the public sector debt in these days. And he's pointing out that there are other uh, stocks of capital that you might legitimately <coughs> worry about if you're a policymaker. For example, the stock of democratic capital that has been built up since World War II. In Europe, maybe we should worry about handing that on intact to our children and grandchildren as well. All right. So that's that's when we started thinking about this. I put a post on the Irish Economy blog, and then Barry said, "Could we write a paper about this?" And and that's how um, uh, it all started. However, today is completely different to the 1930s uh, in many ways. Uh, we haven't come out of World War One. We've come out of 50, 60 years of unprecedented peace and prosperity, and so on. So that. You know, uh, you know, the reparations and, you know, revanchism and frontiers and all of the aftermath of Versailles. I mean, that's, 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 that's not got anything uh, to do with us. I mean, economically, if you think about the welfare state, I mean, the consequences of being unemployed in Germany or somewhere in 1929, 1930 were much more radical than the consequences of being uh, unemployed in most of our states today. And that clearly has got to have uh, an important uh, economic uh, and political uh, consequence and we have bigger states you know so even if countries aren't uh, actively reflating their economies those bigger states are going to be a stabilizing mechanism the automatic stabilizer is going to be working more uh, effectively and so on in a sense the proof of the pudding there is in what happens if, if, if we haven't allowed the automatic stabilizers to work so in a country like Ireland or Latvia or so on you've seen these double digit declines in output uh, or Greece uh, since this thing started. That, that tells you uh, what could happen uh, if we completely uh, ignored the automatic stabilizers. The difference today is that uh, it's only little countries that don't effectively matter very much uh, that have been engaged in, in, in that kind of very harsh pro-cyclical policy. In the 20s and 30s, it was all the big economies that were doing uh, the same thing. 
So I do want to emphasize that today is completely different to the 30s in all sorts of ways. I'm sure we'll hear more about that in uh, the discussion. And yet, so this was the point of, um, this is the point of um, my blog post that, that sparked this paper. There were people saying, look, we don't have to worry about this at all, you know, because Europe is just very, very stable. And, uh, well, we, it's, you know, famously Hitler only got 2.6% of the vote in 1928. All right? It was a, a tiny, minuscule uh, party at that time. And now I know that these people are not Nazis or, or anything close. I know that. All right? Thank you. I, I, I do know that. But, you know, some of these people are quite unpleasant. I mean, Jobbik is really, Jobbik is really very unpleasant, right? And these are, these are quite big numbers. And these are quite big numbers before the crisis hit. You know, and so I said, you know, can we really assume uh, that all of this nastiness is 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 completely uh, in the past? And I mean, ever since, I mean, now we see the National Front's numbers in in France, of course, and that is uh, genuinely alarming. So that was the point of that uh, initial uh, post of mine. And so, well, then it morphed into our project, morphed into a historical paper. So it's me, it's Barry, and it's a guy called Alan de Bromhead, who I don't know, he's 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 a DPhil student here. Uh, at Oxford, so it's a paper by the three of us. And we ended up being sufficiently worried about drawing lessons from the past for the present, from the past for the present, that we kept that out of the paper. This is just a purely uh, historical uh, paper. Uh, we're not really so much concerned with the question of can we generalize from the 1920s and 30s to today, but can we generalize from the German experience in this period to the experience of other countries? So Germany uh, is different in lots of ways. I mean, it's famously the country where, you know, mass unemployment leads to Hitler and so on, but can you really uh, generalize from this? It was distinctive in all sorts of ways. It had a particularly reactionary agrarian aristocracy uh, before World War I, which sort of lingers into the interwar period. They had been defeated in World War I. Not everybody was defeated by World War I. Hard to think of people winning it, but not everybody was defeated. Uh, it was driven by all sorts of class and ideological uh, and religious divides, and the Weimar electoral system was famously uh, friendly towards uh, small parties. So maybe the association that we think exists between unemployment uh, and the Depression and Hitler in Germany is, is, is sui generis, and uh, there's nothing more general that can be said about this phenomenon. So. Well, we, we, we decided that we would see if there was a general relationship between business cycle conditions and extremism uh, in the interwar period. So there's two big questions. Do we find this link in general between economic hard times and voting for extremists in other countries? And then secondly, but this is a minor part of the paper actually, uh, do the structural features that have been advanced as explanations for German voting patterns, for example, their, uh, uh, their medieval uh, uh, aristocratic junker class, you know, uh, are there are those sorts of structural features also at work in other countries? As it, as it turns out, there's not that much we can say about this, but we, we do try to say something. So what we do, we have data for 171 elections in 28 countries, all right? And we're going to analyze the determinants of voting for extremism in these 171 uh, uh, elections. And we're interested in, was there a link between the business cycle and voting for extremists? And we're interested under about what conditions uh, might have led to that link being particularly tight. Maybe it's not a one-size-fits-all correlation. Maybe there are different sorts of countries, and this correlation is tighter than some types of countries than in other types of countries. What the paper is not about is the collapse of democracy. Uh, so uh, an Oxford colleague, Giovanni Capaccio, has written a big book about this. And well, there's a problem once you start thinking about this because a lot of the democracies collapsed before the depression. So we're you know we're we're just not going there. All right. Uh, this is a paper purely about voting behavior. 
Um, then we started looking for literature. There is some literature on voting for right-wing extremists today or over the last two or three decades. It tends to be interested in things like where you have more unemployment, do people, are people more likely to vote for a right-wing populist party? And they find that probably yes, but then there are nuances. So this paper here says there is a link between unemployment and populism in countries where there is an immigrant class that can serve as a scapegoat, but not in countries where there are not so many immigrants. And then there's a debate about that. So there's a, a statistical debate in the uh, political science literature uh, about this. And, and in a way, this is the paper that first made us think maybe we could write a paper. It's just looking at not uh, election results, but at opinion surveys. And it's finding that there is a link between, uh, uh, between growth and uh, self-declared support for extremism. But of course, self-declared support for extremism isn't the same as uh, support at the ballot box, which is what we're, we're really interested in. Um, there's obviously a huge literature, historical literature, about all of these uh, phenomena in the interwar period, but we couldn't find exactly what we were looking for, right? There's a, there's a big literature on the rise of the fascists and the Nazis. There is a quantitative literature on the determinants of the vote for Hitler within Germany, and I'm going to be referring to that briefly. Um, but we couldn't find similar quantitative literatures that talked in general about links between right-wing extremism and the business cycle uh, across countries. Uh, and so we felt that there was uh, a definite gap in the market there. Let me talk a little bit about the literature on, on Germany, because it's the best developed for obvious reasons. And if there are students here, I mean, it's the sort of literature where there are actually research questions that can be, uh, I think, uh, generalized to other countries potentially and so on. So in, 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 the, um, in the German literature, there are two distinct questions that you could ask. Firstly, what's the impact of the Great Depression? And secondly, who voted for Hitler? Now, this is a sort of a time series question. It's about what <coughs> drove the upward trend in the Nazi vote over time. And this is about, you know, in a given election, what groups in society voted for Hitler or not. And these two questions can end up being conflated sometimes because unemployment is what goes up during the Depression. Uh, so that's our best measure of the Depression. But that doesn't mean that the unemployed voted for Hitler. In fact, the unemployed probably, you know, some of them did, I suppose, but they're probably much more likely on average to vote uh, for uh, the communists. And so there's been a statistical uh, literature about how you think about this. So this is, you know, the, the argument that says, there's something going on here, folks. Right, so this is the Nazi vote. I cheated very slightly in that there are two elections in 1932. So put the November election assigned out to 1933 so the graph would look nice. And I assigned the December 24 election to 25 so that you know, it wasn't having to do with two elections in one year. Um, but I mean, actually doing that makes sense because famously the Nazis do see a dip in the share of their vote and the economy uh, is recovering by late 32. Um, so that's the time series correlation, but in the cross section, this is a stylized picture, but the, the correlation coefficients are, are drawn from real, real data exercises. In, in the cross section, you know, uh, the, uh, the communists are uh, more likely to vote you know, for, for the, or the, the unemployed are more likely to vote for the communists than for the Nazis. So there's a negative relationship, say, across districts uh, between the share of the Nazi vote and the unemployment rate. But what's happening over time is that negative correlation is shifting out. That's, what, that's what's happening. And so essentially, the, the, the relationship that you find regarding was there a link between unemployment and voting for Hitler depends on whether you're primarily picking up time series variation, in which case you will find a link, or cross-section variation, in which case you won't. Right? So there's a statistical literature about how you tease all of this out. The, the more interesting 
literature really is uh, who actually voted for him, right? So, so uh, this is Gary King, who's a political scientist at Harvard, who's this kind of brilliant uh, guy. Uh, so, you know, at the constituency level, we know who voted for the Nazis, the liberals, you know, and everybody else. And we also know from the census data, because we can match that to the constituencies, you know, who's self-employed, blue-collar, white-collar, and so on. And so what we'd really like to know is, you know, what share of the unemployed voted for the far left, the center, you know, the Nazis, and so on. Now, you will notice that there are a lot more question marks here than there are numbers. Uh, and this is a problem. But Gary King's a clever man, and he's found a solution. <laughs> so he has a maximum likelihood estimator that allows you essentially to fill in all of the, uh, the blanks. And the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So when he does this, he comes up with uh, results that look sensible. So he finds that the areas where you're most likely to get uh, an increase in the Nazi vote, moving from 28 through to 32, are in areas where you have high proportions of self-employed people and domestically employed people, which includes agrarian peasants, but pre predominantly in Protestant areas, right? Because in the Catholic areas, they're still voting for the Centrum and so on, all right? So that's sort of what we thought we knew. And so in a sense, that helps to validate the method. I should point out that the same Alan de Bromhead, who's a co-author with us, he's doing his deep fill here. And he's exploiting the fact that in about 20% of the constituencies, they counted the women's votes and the men's votes separately, which is an extraordinary thing. So you can actually see how the women voted in constituencies and compare it with the male votes. And what you find is that the women were actually more moderate than the men. And then they become more like the men uh, in 32. And they become more like the men, uh, especially in these groups here, self-employed and domestic. So there's all sorts of things that you can do with this methodology. And you could do this for other countries too, I'm sure. We're not doing anything quite so uh, exciting, unfortunately. So we're interested in the impact of economic growth on uh, right-wing extremist voting. It will be better to do unemployment and the right-wing vote, but unemployment statistics for the interwar period are just not comparable. It's a complete mess, so we can't do that. So we have to look at GDP growth. All right, we have this for a bunch of countries over time. So you know, we have several Norwegian elections, we have several German elections. We probably do want to take account of the fact that Norway is not the same as Germany. This would seem sensible. And so we have fixed effects. So, so, so we have a, a dummy variable in our regression that is you know, one for Norway uh, and zero for everybody else. So you're allowing for the fact that Norway is, is different from Germany. But that means that if there are fe other features of being Norway that are invariant across time, we can't tell you anything about how they influence the vote in Norway. They're all sucked up on that dummy variable, and that's, that's a basic problem uh, when it comes to thinking about mechanisms and structure and so on. All right. Most of the data are for Europe, but we have some non-European data also, and we're relying on the political scientists here. So we're particularly interested in votes for anti-system parties, where anti-system parties defined as a party that would change the system of government rather than just the government uh, itself. Uh, and we're particularly focusing on the extreme right wing anti-system parties and the, the communists. And, uh, well, I'm going to flash that up so that your favorite your country, you can see if it makes sense. And I'm going to quickly scroll down just in case it doesn't. There are some judgment calls here. So, for example, the, uh, the DNVP is this anti-system. So we're relying on somebody else's classification. And he says they become anti-system after a certain period, point. You know, well... We, 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 we worry about that, as you'll see in a moment. So this is the relationship that we're interested in, relationship between growth and extremist voting. We have control variables of various sorts, or there are other things that might matter. Uh, 
There are people who've argued that modernity is good for democracy. So we collected data on urbanization. That's a variable that Lipset thought was important. We know whether in your country you had a nasty reactionary pre-war uh, agrarian elite. We have data coded from other authors on, on whether there are religious, ethnic, social cleavages. We know, did you win or lose World War One? We know, uh, did you have a PR <coughs> electoral system? Uh, and so on. And here's the one that turns out to actually be important. Uh, we look at whether you were a democracy before World War I or not. Because there is an argument that says that exposure to democracy helps inoculate you against non-democratic uh, parties. That's a, a theoretical claim that's been made and we're going to talk about that uh, later on. Okay, so I'm going to show you some regressions, but before I show you the regressions, let me just show you some sort of uh, uh, average voting data, if you like. So this is the votes for anti-system parties uh, in the last election before the Great Depression. And this is the votes for the anti-system parties in the uh, post-1929 election where those extremist votes were at their peak, right? So it's before and then it's after, but it's, you know, the worst it ever got, right? And it's just dividing it up by country. So I'm going to help you uh, see what you ought to see. So first of all, what you see is that there is an increase in voting for extremists from 3-4% on average to 10%. We want to exclude Finland sometimes because they suppress their communists. Um, there's lots of variation in the data. So there are, there are countries like Germany and Czechoslovakia where there was a fairly big extremist vote before and it gets even bigger. There are countries like uh, Romania and Bulgaria where there was not a big extremist vote before and then a big one after. And then there are moderate, tolerant countries like Ireland and Norway where there were no extremists before and no extremists uh, after. So this is nice. I mean, it means that there's variation in the data. It also means you can't generalize, I suppose. Uh, economists are always torn between wanting variation in the data and wanting to generalize, and these things don't always go well together. Generally, it tends to be the extreme right that does well. So these countries here are that I've highlighted. We see a big increase in the uh, extreme right-wing vote, for example, Romania. But there are some countries where it's the, the communists, that see a big increase in their votes. So again, it's hard to really generalize. Um, there are average correlations, but hard to really generalize. Let me, let me begin by just saying something about these uh, country characteristics that I'm not going to be able to deal with in my regressions because they're fixed uh, by time. So I'm interested in, for example, whether having a pre-1914 agrarian aristocracy meant that you had a bigger fascist vote in the interwar period, for example. All right? So, so I can see... Uh, whether it means that you have, I can see whether having a pre-war agrarian uh, elite uh, leads to uh, a higher fascist vote in general after 1919, and I can also look and see whether it leads to a bigger increase in the fascist vote after after 1929. And by the way, I'm going to say fascist, even though I know they're not all fascists, but pre, you know, uh, extreme right anti-system parties a bit of a, a mouthful. All right. Um, so there, I'm going to show you pictures, don't worry. All right, The pictures are ultimately based on regressions. And actually, let me just, because time is going to move on. Basically, we find nothing for, did you have a pre-war agrarian elite? Were you urbanized? Did you have a religious divide? Did you have a, an ethno-linguistic divide? There's no average correlations there in the data whatsoever. All right, Where we get, uh, where we get correlations, first of all, it's the extreme right that on average does better. So this is... Uh, how much did the uh, fascist vote go up on average after 1929? And it usually goes up by quite a bit. 
and they're often statistically significant. And if you compare that with the communist vote, you know, on average, they're not doing that well. So it's this kind of paradox. Uh, it's a crisis of capitalism, and it's, the, uh, it's not the communists who are reaping the benefit. All right, pictures. Um, so if we slice and dice the, the country sample into different uh, groups, uh, what turns out to be statistically uh, significant and, and quantitatively meaningful. So one way of chopping up the sample that seems to make a difference is were you a World War I loser or not. So if you were a World War I loser, uh, then after 1929, you have big fascist vote, much bigger than if you had not been on the losing side in World War I. So these are post-29 votes, these are pre-29 votes. There's no fascists most any place before the Great Depression. Afterwards there is, but especially if you were on the losing side. Communists, it looks different. With communists, again, being a loser matters, but the effect shows up immediately after World War I, whereas the fascists, it only shows up after 1929. Nothing causal here, but I mean, these are just interesting, these are interesting uh, facts about the data, I suppose. And then the other one that, that seems to matter is, um, were you a democracy before World War I or not? Which is obviously <coughs> largely the same as were you on the losing side in World War I. Uh, which is a problem, but we'll get to that. Uh, and it's the same. It's the same story, right? So the pre-war democracies uh, are are largely immune uh, from the siren call of fascism. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's the same thing, essentially. The, the only other country characteristic that seems to matter is, is that you have a PR system. But interestingly enough, it wasn't the fascists that seemed to have systematically benefited from PR. It was the communists. All right. So so this is saying that if you have PR you had a much bigger communist vote than if you didn't have PR. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's much bigger, in fact. And then, and then it gets even bigger still after the Depression. Okay, so summing up thus far, I guess I have, I guess I have, uh, I guess I have 15 minutes left, so I'll slow down a little bit. Um, the fascist vote increases by more after 29 than the communist vote on average. <laughs> Communists are better on average in countries that have lost World War I, and... Now we have a quote there that suggests that this makes uh, sense, uh, and in countries with PR electoral systems, all right? So, so where you know these poor people who get in the trenches? I mean, you know, uh, they get mad, and if they're on the other <coughs> side, they seem to have gotten madder on average. And this leads. Well, I like this guy Lubberts. Do you know this guy Lubberts, who's a political scientist? I, I must say, I like his account of, of all of this. Um, anyway, I, we can talk about that via. In the discussion, maybe <coughs> fascists do better in countries that lost World War One, but only after 1929. In new democracies, especially after 1929. Um, now, what have we not accounted for? It's just been before and after, before 29, after 29. We haven't accounted for the fact that the depression starts at different times in different countries, ends at different times in different countries, is worse in some countries than others. And this is where we want to do some regression analysis. So this is what the data look like. Uh, so this is the growth over three years, and here's the fascist vote share. You can see there's lots of zeros. There's lots of countries that never had a fascist party to vote for, all right? And that's going to uh, influence the type of regression that we run, the type of statistical exercise that we engage in has got to take account of the fact that there are all of those uh, zeros <coughs> in the data. All right. And we're also going to want to see if any correlations that we find are robust to excluding Germany for obvious reasons. Is this just a German story? Or is it something more than that? Um, yes, yeah, so I've, I've, I've said that. So let me, let me show you some regression results. Okay. So 
these regression results they show the they show the impact of various variables on or the statistical relationship between various variables and the extreme right-wing anti-system vote and looking at in particular the impact of or the relationship between growth and the fascist vote growth over the previous one year over the previous two years over the previous three years that's what i'm really interested in all right there are some control variables there so we do want to allow for the fact that 1929-33 was different to 25 to 28 was different to 1919 to 23 so we are at least controlling for some things that are making the world worse and worse as you move forward uh, in time nothing much there if you look at urbanization um but that's because a country is more or less urbanized and that's a sort of pretty country fixed effect i mean it, it will it will become a little bit more urbanized over the course of this period but basically there are some countries that are more urbanized some that are less and so this is all going to be swallowed up in these country fixed effects i was talking about if you just forget about the fixed effects and exclude germany then indeed more urbanized uh, countries have smaller fascist votes which is i guess what lipset would have uh, predicted you know but germany messes things up for him because germany is very modern and has a very big fascist vote all right but it's fairly weak and there's there's something there if you look for evidence of of, of electoral systems mattering so for any political scientist there you know, in a pr system you have an electoral threshold like five percent in germany we all know but then you can also think about what's the effective electoral threshold. So that's based on things like, given that you have constituencies, how many seats are in the constituency, how many parties are vying for those seats, then de facto, uh, what share of the vote you need to get in order to have a sort of probabilistic chance of getting somebody into the parliament. All right, so it's a de facto kind of a thing. And there's some weak evidence there that the higher the threshold you have to jump over, the lower is the fascist vote. But it's not terribly strong, but there's something there. This is what we're interested in. Um, what's interesting is that if you look at the impact or the statistical association between growth and the fascist vote over one year, if you include enough control variables, it goes away. It goes away. It goes away for two years. It's there for three years. It's there for four years. It's there for five years. So there's a statistical relationship between growth over three, four, five year horizon, but not over the one and two year horizon, which from introspection makes sense. But that's just from introspection. You know, you, you lose hope at a certain point. That's why it's important to cut these things off. Now, you might be worried that the, you might be worried that if we're looking at growth over three years, and if there's several elections in that three-year period, that we're double counting bad experiences somehow. So if you do it again, but exclude all elections falling within three years of each other, you get the same result. And if you exclude Germany you get the same result. It's not just a German phenomenon, okay? So there is a statistical relationship there, it seems, uh, between growth over the longer, you know, the, say the three, four, five year horizon and the fascist vote, but not shorter periods of time. I, I'm interested in how big these effects are. Um, and let me actually, I'll give you a better, I'll give you a better uh, slide on that in a moment. All right, and, and here, here's where I'm coming from. We're interested in whether uh, the association between growth and the fascist vote is bigger in some countries than in others. So what you can do is you can chop the country, up, the country sample up into countries that were democracies before World War I and that weren't. And then you can basically see if the association between growth and uh, the fascism, fascist vote is higher in one group of countries than in the others. So what this says here, this is an interaction 
for the econometricians between growth and a pre-World War I dummy, what this is basically saying is if you were a pre-war democracy, the total association between growth and the fascist vote is this plus this, which is almost zero. It's very small. All right. So if you're Britain or if you're Ireland or if you're another country that had been democratic before World War I, there is no real relationship there. The, the total relationship that I found earlier is being driven statistically by the relationship uh, that you find in the sample of countries that hadn't been democratic uh, before uh, World War I. And when you then look and see uh, how big this statistical association is, well, one way of doing it is to think about um, if you experience the growth decline that they experienced in Germany, how big of an increase in the fascist vote would you expect, given this average correlation? And the answer is you'd expect uh, an increase in the fascist vote of eight percentage points. Eight percentage points. As opposed to, well, now it depends. If you think that the DNVP were always fascist, uh, then the increase in the vote is only 20 percentage points. Some of you explain quite a lot, eight out of 20. If you think that they flipped in an important matter, then we're explaining a smaller share. But we're, so we're explaining quite a bit, but it's not the whole story. But there is something there. All right. Um, so th this is just a quote from Eric Hobsbawm. You know, there, there, you know, the, no the notion that having been a democracy over a longer period of time might inoculate you against these kinds of political temptations isn't a new story. All that we're doing here is we're finding statistical evidence for it. If there are economists in the audience, you're going to be worried about the possibility that it isn't uh, the slump that is causing fascism, but the fascists that are causing the slump. So maybe the I'm glad that you're smiling because I mean I think the direction of causation is pretty clear myself. But the argument would be that if you're an investor and you see how Hitler doing better in 1930, maybe you panic and this has bad. Uh, and and there, there surely was a bit of that going on, right? Uh, so we, we, we try to uh, convince our readers that this isn't so much of a problem. Uh, but insofar as it is a problem, I mean, I think it strengthens our key political message, which is that if there had been better macroeconomic policy uh, earlier on in the crisis, then this supposed two-way feedback mechanism between uh, worsening economic conditions and worsening political conditions wouldn't have gotten going. So I mean, that's ultimately what our agenda is. So we feel you know, okay about this. Correlations are, are interesting sometimes. We do a bunch of robustness checks if you are worried about this kind of thing. So uh, this is our, our base case estimation was with a, something called a fixed effects tobit. You could do a random effects tobit. You can do it with year dummies. You can do it with OLS. With year dummies, it's pretty robust. You try different things and you get a pretty robust correlation. And there's some evidence. This is looking at uh, Growth and growth squared. So that's to see if there's a nonlinear effect. So when growth gets worse, does that have a much bigger bad effect on the voting uh, behavior? And it does. You know, there's some evidence, some evidence there of nonlinearities, which is maybe not so surprising. Uh, this is the next uh, slide that I really want to talk about. Do the same thing for communists, and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's no relationship between growth and the communist vote, which is, you know. Surprising, maybe, but maybe not. Depends on whether you're a historian or not, possibly. I show this to economists, and they're very surprised. So they then say, well, why on earth are the fascists uh, benefiting from this, and, uh, and, and the communists aren't? And here I can say, look, I'm only an, I'm only an economist myself. You know, what do I know, right? But so, so this is 
the sorts of things that I think historians say, right? So there's uh, an extent to which social democrats were discredited in some countries by their involvement in World War I. Uh, the left-wing movement splinters, you know, there's the communists and the social democrats. There's civil warfare between the two uh, sides, especially after this left turn in 1929. And then if we were looking for resonances, because I, I, I do, I guess, share... Carr's, E.H. Carr's view of what useful history is, you know, so, so if you're looking for re resonances, uh, I don't know what the real historians in the room think of this book, but I quite like this book by Sherry Berman. So Sherry Berman says, you know, the problem with a lot of the SPD parties is they were orthodox Marxists. They were waiting for the revolution to happen. They never really came up with programs that would have preserved private property, but bent the market so that it served the interests of people and not the other way around. In countries like Sweden, where they did that, you know, or even Ireland, I suppose, is a kind of funny example of that. You know, where there was interventionism that seemed to work, people loved that. And the problem was the orthodox left in many countries wasn't, um, wasn't offering that. So that's what I read from the literature, and there might indeed be resonances there, but, but maybe historians want to disagree with uh, this interpretation of the data. All right. We also looked at what determined how many people you got into Parliament. Well, the higher the vote share, the bigger the seat share. That's not very surprising. But uh, less obvious, the, the higher the electoral threshold that you have to jump it over to get into Parliament, the lower the seat share. And so, so, so there is evidence. There's weak evidence if you look at voting, and there's very strong evidence if you look at how many deputies you get into Parliament uh, that uh, the electoral systems mattered. And that the people who, after the war, looked at PR and said, you know, maybe there's a problem here. They weren't necessarily completely wrong. So that's, that's, just, um, that's just making that point. All right. A final slide, and then I'll move on to concluding comments. So uh, up till now, what I've been doing is looking at the relationship between the fascist vote and the communist vote and GDP growth. And I found that it only mattered, you know, over the three-year horizon. For uh, about a half of our countries in our sample, we have consumption growth. This is from Barrow and Ursula. And you might think that consumption, it's something that's a, getting a bit closer to what households are actually experiencing, all right? And actually what you find is that you get massively bigger and more statistically significant effects, even though we've chopped our sample size in half. So I think that there maybe is you know, work that one could do, potentially thinking about what aspects of macroeconomic economic, uh, activity are particularly politically significant. But, but then part of me thinks that actually it's the more historical questions that are the really interesting ones. So in conclusion, do Germans German lessons generalize for this period? Some do, right? Fascists in general did better in countries that had been the losing side in World War I, had limited democratic capital, possessed electoral systems conducive to entry, and experienced serious, serious slumps, which was our major result. So these are all aspects of the German experience that do seem to carry over. As I say, it's not clear to me that you would want to generalize to today. But if you really wanted to take these results seriously, then you might, I suppose, expect to see bigger extremist right-wing votes in recent democracies that have very severe slumps. So, you know, make of that what you uh, will. And there is also a longer-run political context. So let me just finish with... Uh, a few more slides. And I think this is the longer run political context because what we have now is we have a, a short, sharp shock that's being superimposed upon a much longer run and slower shift that is having major political uh, implications. And that shift has basically got to do with the changing division of labor globally. So back in the 60s, 
going on until quite recently, actually. Uh, southern exports to northern countries were 90% primary products, only 10% manufactured goods. And that 10%, 90% ratio, you could send that back into the late 19th century. It was thus for forever, seemingly. Um, and then things changed, and they changed very quickly. And what that means is that now the composition of their exports is such that what they're exporting to us is potentially competing with stuff that we are or were producing domestically. And what that means is there are now losers, potential losers from this trade, as well as winners. All right. So if I were to go back into history to find an analogy for this, I wouldn't go to the interwar period. I'd go to the late 19th century. I'd go to the invasion of cheap grain from the Americas and the Ukraine that did serious damage uh, to farmers and landowners and so on right around Europe. And where those uh, farming interests were sufficiently powerful, they got protection. Uh, and the, this backlash was sufficiently powerful that it completely overturned the move towards liberalism that had characterized the continent until you know, the mid-1870s uh, or so. And if you read Ron Rogowski or whatever, he'll tell you very nice stories about how the major political cleavages in many European countries were driven by this basic issue of how we responded to the grain invasion. Who are the equivalents of the 19th century uh, farmers and landowners? Well, it's blue-collar workers, right? Uh, and what we know from survey evidence is that in rich countries, so in rich countries, being high-skilled is associated with being less protectionist, more in favor of uh, free trade. So the number here is it's basically the correlation, if you like, between being high-skilled and being protectionist. So a negative number means being high-skilled is associated with being not protectionist, or being low-skilled is associated with being protectionist. Right? So in rich countries, it's poorer people who are protectionist, it's richer people who are cosmopolitan and liberal and all that good stuff. And I mean, very tellingly, the correlation actually reverses in poorer countries. Now, this has been, in a way, a completely latent political force, I would say. You don't see, you know, you got a, who's the giant sucking sound man in America? Ross yeah, Ross Perot. But it, it went nowhere, right? And Pat Buchanan tried this in America, and it basically went nowhere, right? So maybe you're not going to vote for Ross Perot to be president of the United States just because you're ticked off with you know, the Mexicans for sucking your jobs out. And maybe you're not going to vote for the Front National, let's hope, just because you don't like globalization. But when people are given a chance to vote on trade in general and the market in general, as in France in 2005, you saw exactly the correlation emerging in the ballot boxes that we see in the opinion surveys. It was, it was quite blatant. And in Ireland, for the Lisbon treaties, it was the same thing. All the blue-collar worker uh, districts voted against Lisbon. All of the bourgeois areas voted in favor. So you've got this potentially important class divide on which now you have this shock being superimposed. And that is, I think, what gives me a bit of a pause for concern. So now the paper is over. I'm just editorializing. <laughs> but um, I worry about a situation where, in this kind of context, uh, if all of the centrist parties in Europe just throw up their hands and say, we'd love to be able to help you, we really would, but there's nothing that we can do. On the trade front, we're constrained by the WTO. On the macroeconomic front, we're constrained by the ECB and the six-pack and the two-pack and the, every other bloody pack you can imagine. And, you know, and anyway, the Germans won't wear any change. Then at a certain point, uh, people maybe will start to look elsewhere because as we know in the interwar period, you know, there were constraints on macroeconomic policymaking there were some people willing to think outside the box, and those people eventually got uh, the vote. So that's my editorialising, uh, with no scientific uh, basis for it whatsoever. All right. So, so um, 
Over to you. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, thank you, Paul. Um, Thanksgiving. I, I thought that was particularly um, interesting, and also for me because um, I'm, I'm not very familiar with the quantitative um, uh, research, and because I've done a lot of um, work and, and reading on extreme right to see all this quantified, that for me was um, really challenging. And one thing that I particularly appreciated was the, the, um, the richness of all these variables, because all of them are actually very, very relevant when you study the, the notion of, um, of extremism. Um, and then I started thinking first of your title, because um, you know, in your, um, in your uh, chapter, uh, paper, do German lessons generalize? And this, I think, is such a relevant question, um, uh, also for the interwar period, because um, it's always a question whether Nazi Germany is comparable to any other case um, uh, in uh, European fascist, fascistoid, uh, uh, or whatever uh, you know, other authoritarian regimes that exist. I think the only comparative could be, um, which makes it non-comparable, is to have the you know the Soviet Union communist regime compared with other um, uh, East European countries. But what I um, what I think is correct uh, about your approach is that you take the the example of Nazi Germany and you kind of you know deconstruct it and you see all those because it was a a very rich configuration of, of, of um, circumstances that led to this kind of um, very extreme phenomenon in, in Nazi Germany. And that way is how I read it. I mean, by looking at your um, variables and how you deconstructed um, um, the, the reasons why we have this um, uh, rise of, of extremism. And then the other thing is that whether it makes it um, relevant for today, because um, we do see um, many references as to you know what's happening today with the with the economic crisis. Uh, most of them are actually from an impressionistic perspective. I mean, we we were discussing the other day that there was an article in the in the Financial Times um, that was quite provocative by saying whether uh, Greece reminds us of Weimar Republic, and that is actually you know is there a truth to it or is it just for impressionistic reasons that um, we have uh, this discussion? Well, I'm among those who believe that you know you can take lessons. I mean, you know, everything is unique, but you um, certainly can take lessons from from Nazi Germany, um, and especially that um, uh, connection between uh, uh, cumulative growth, the connection with uh, with other variables that you mentioned, the uh, democratic culture, or the um, the loss, um, you know, the big loss from from World War One. Although that's not relevant at all today, one could see you know, a comparison between Greece feeling internationally defeated and that kind of cre creates um, a certain uh, resentment. Um, one thing that I would like to, uh, uh, to ask and uh, talk about, I mean, voting behavior is particularly um, important, but in the context of the interwar period, is also where this lead. Uh, and in some cases, it did lead to authoritarianism and dictatorship, but in others, it, it did not. Um, and um, Kaposha has um, this very interesting article about uh, the current Belgium, Czechoslovakia, and Finland, uh, who did not succumb to authoritarianism, actually, and uh, they preserved uh, their democracy. Um, and that, for me, is, uh, you know, as a political scientist, is also a very interesting question. So why, uh, why did this happen? But it also relates to what you said about um, democratic culture and democratic tradition, because one thing, of course, is to see democratic tradition and culture as a longevity, um, and uh, having these countries um, 
you know, preparing, what Hobsbawm said actually, preparing um, better defenses against authoritarians. But the other thing which is very important is also what are the short-term kind of responses uh, towards the rise of, of extremism. And um, that may not be in your analysis, but I think it's particularly important uh, and a reason why um, those some parties did better than others and actually some outcomes were um, uh, towards uh, dictatorship in that how the other parties responded to it was particularly significant uh, um, and this kind of strategy. And that is also relevant today because there's a lot of discussion, especially now in view of the European elections, as to how the mainstream parties um, respond to the rise of extremism um, in, um, uh, in many European countries. And then it, it confuses us also with this argument of democratic culture because we see the rise of, um, of extremism in countries that have a very, very solid democratic culture. I mean, you know, you see it in, in the Netherlands or in France. Um, and then you, it, it's interesting also that in other countries where you've got similar circumstances, like the south of Europe, you see it in Greece, but then you don't see it in Spain or you don't see it in Portugal or Ireland where you've got um, similar kinds of pressures. So that variance actually is, 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 is particularly uh, significant um, uh, to uh, uh, look at. And then when you talk about the issue of growth, um, and uh, you mentioned you know, this related to unemployment, but I was just wondering whether it's also the issue of inequality, I mean inequality. So one should definitely see how uh, uh, growth or uh, times of, 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 of big, um, of, of big recession or depression actually where you know the, the whole um, um, output is how the output is distributed who are the losers who are the winners and that sense of inequality in particular I think is very very important because that leads um, uh, uh, the the voting the extremist vote is on the right because um, there is a there is actually a reality of inequality but also the, a, a, a perception and imagined inequality in, in many ways that um, that um, leads and that is also connected with the fact that there are many variables um, uh, that cannot be um, uh, measured uh, quantitatively especially in phenomena like this because there's a lot of um, of emotion when voters actually go and vote for a party um, uh, which is anti-system which is out of the um, of, of the mainstream um, uh, kind of um, uh, space and um, that is something that also affects voters at the time of voting. I mean, how they feel about, that's why maybe it, it's important that uh, the, the issue of losing of World War I is particularly important because this is how it plays into the minds of people. And um, uh, to this day, I also, you know, I also believe that uh, uh, one of the most important factors in the German case and the German um, rise of Nazism and also going into the war was that, you know, sense of injustice that, uh, you know, that was from the Versailles, that they could never, I mean, they had to, to set the record straight with a, possibly with a victory um, in the uh, Second World War. Um, so this is, you know, what I had to say. Um, um, one minor question that I wanted to ask you is why don't you include um, uh, Turkey in this, um, uh, in your um, uh, um, group of countries because uh, there are many, um, uh, you know, comparable kind of um, uh, variables there in terms of uh, loss of World War One, non-democratic tradition, and uh, yet this is a country that didn't experience an extreme right and uh, rising extremism, but a different kind of uh, um, uh, political reaction. Yeah.